All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Fields of Fortune. You guys know what it is, man. The number one podcast on all platforms, if you're looking for unbiased, uh, real, digestible, um, and most of all, just useful information. Once again, I'm your host, Christian Fields, uh, soon to be professional. School's coming to an end for me. I'm excited. But anywho, that's not what this is about. Um, this is about you guys. So we're going to jump right into our market recap as usual. But uh, before we jump into that market recap, this market recap is brought to you by Overdue Recognition Art Gallery. Now, for those of you who have never heard of it, uh, they're based in Bowie, which is right outside D.C., if you're familiar with the, the greater D.C. area. But they're the first and only African-American art gallery in Bowie, right? I'm talking contemporary art and sculptures, uh, both originals and fine art reproductions. Um, I've been in, I've seen it firsthand. It's, it's amazing. Uh, over 40 black artists at the moment right now. And of course, they're still growing. Uh, they also do secondary market services so they can assist you in buying and selling um, other art that might not even be in their store. Um, some of their past transactions include artworks by the one and only Jacob Lawrence, William Tolliver, Charles Bibbs, and so much more. Um, they even do art auctions. Uh, they have various fundraisers uh, for schools, churches, other nonprofits in the uh, the local Bowie area. They even educate their clients on uh, lectures, right, about how art can be an investment because it is. And I will get into that in a later episode. But uh, workshops, meeting greets with artists, so many other things, man. So if you're in the area, um, even if you're not, go online and check out Overdue Recognition Art Gallery. They have some wonderful stuff. I know you'll you'll like what you see. Uh, check out fine art at overdue recognition.com. That's the email again, fine art at overdue recognition.com or at overdue recognition gallery on all social platforms. All right, now let's jump into our market recap as usual. So, last week was an interesting week with jobs, but first, we're going to start with the usual um, SP. So, the SP is up for the sixth straight week now, right? So, we're talking a month and a half of gains. It's, it's getting uh, very impressive at this point. Um, we're at 46.04, ended off the week, right? Now, bull estimates were actually at uh, 4,500 maybe two months ago, and now we've succeeded at, you know? And now bull estimates are at 47.50. Um, that is for, for the year end, right? So by the end of this month now, uh, analysts say, you know, 47.50 is that bull market that, that you know, signals, okay, next year is going to be a, a strong year for the S&P as well. The Nasdaq was up uh, a little bit, about 69 basis points for the uh, for last week, and the 10-year bond yield was up about three basis points. So all in all, we're seeing positive movement. Um, and again, if you tuned into last week's episode, you know that uh, movement, positive movement, that is, in the stock and bond market um, simultaneously is, I mean, fairly rare, <laughs> one might add, right? It's, it's not common at all. Um, but just progressing into that is for a lot of reasons. Well, the market was... Uh, pricing in 127 basis point cuts next year. Now, of course, none of these are solidified or guaranteed, but um, it just goes to show you how much interest rates have been affecting the market, right? Uh, traders see some, you know, show ambiguity when there are shaky interest rates, right? But now that they feel there's some, uh, you know, quote unquote, relief, coming, right, which again is not guaranteed, uh, you see more people buying, you see more activity, more volatility. Um, getting into the jobs report, uh, the non-farm payrolls went up 
200,000 in November, right? Now they were expected to only go up 180,000. We've exceeded that, right? Um, sign that a market is expanding and not contracting. Um, again, last week's episode was about the uh, possibilities of a recession not being out the picture, and it's still not. But uh, this jobs report is a very positive sign showing that uh, the market is expanding. And as you know, in a recession, the market usually contracts. So uh, continuing with that, unemployment uh, actually decreased to 3.7% in November, and it was expected to decrease to 39 So better than expected unemployed uh, unemployment report and non-farm payrolls report. All positive news, right? Uh, the stock market, all positive news. You know, it's really hard to predict what will happen next year um, between interest rates being unstable, uh, inflation not being where it should be, uh, yet the market is still expanding. We're in a very interesting position because uh, the reason the Fed has been talking about this quote unquote soft landing, right, is because if you lower interest rates too fast, right, that's why they've been fairly high for what, 18 months now, uh, if you lower them too fast, well, spending is just going to increase, which means inflation is just going to shoot up back to where it was, which I believe was like 9% last summer, right? And now we're down to 3.2. So uh, it's, a, it's a tricky game to play because interest rates and inflation, uh, they, they kind of, they're kind of like two sides of the same coin, right? And when they're both high or they're both low, uh, we're not in a good position, right? And right now they're both higher than expected, um, but they are decreasing at a very notable rate. I might say so. Uh, with that being said, we are going to jump. Um, oh, you know what? I have one more fun fact for you. Uh, lowest unemployment rate we're in right now uh, for the longest period of time since Diana Ross had songs in the charts. <laughs> so back, you know, uh, long enough, right? We're talking uh, 40 plus years uh, since we've had this long of a low rate of unemployment, uh, which is amazing because, of course, COVID skewed the numbers of unemployment, right? Uh, but things are, you know, you could say returning to uh, quote unquote pre-pandemic numbers. Um, that's the new measurement. You know, before COVID, it was uh, measuring prior to 08, right? That, that was the uh, quote unquote normal. Um, now our normal is pre-pandemic. So uh, we're going to get into some great information today. Uh, we're going to talk about banking, right? Banking, banking, banking. Uh, what's going to happen with this uh, quote unquote new rule? In banking, right? These these new uh, principles or measurements that banks uh, will abide by in the next few years, and how that's going to affect you, the consumer, because it will. Now, this new proposal, again, I want to highlight, it is a proposal. Uh, it's called Basel Three Endgame, right? Uh, it is, uh, I guess, it's a, a number of measurements developed by uh, the Basel Committee. Uh, really, after 08 is when these sort of uh, started, you know, getting developed. Uh, but they really came to fruition after. Uh, this year alone, we saw the second, third, and fifth largest bank failures in U.S. history in one year, right? Not only in one year, but uh, rather in one month. <laughs> so it was uh, pretty incredible. There was First Republic Bank, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, and uh, one more. But these kind of fell back to back, right? Which was um, basically due to securitization, right? Securitization was the, uh, or it is the process of turning out bank loans that they loan out uh, into securities for others, right? So um, if you all don't know, the bank doesn't have all the money on hand 
uh, that it says it actually holds, right, or manages. Uh, most of it is loaned out to people, and that's how the bank makes their money uh, on taking your money that you put in your account, loaning it out to someone, and charging them interest on it, right? Uh, the problem was they were just uh, loaning out more money and turning more money into uh, securities than they actually could afford to, right? And it kind of led to this house of cards scenario where, uh, you know, someone doesn't get the, the money they, they want to pull out because the bank doesn't have it. And then um, everyone else says, well, if they can't pull their money out, um, I don't trust you with my money either. So I'm going to pull mine out while I still can. Uh, and, you know, the bank has no money to hold. They can make no money, you know, off any interest, right? Because there's no loans. And, and then the bank collapses. So uh, anyway, uh, Basel three in game. A set of measures uh, designed to strengthen uh, regulation and risk management of banks uh, on all different levels. So commercial, commercial, regional, uh, you know, the largest U.S. banks, uh, smaller banks will not be affected as much, uh, but they, of course, still will have to follow regulation. Uh, and so now I'm going to break this down for you. Right. And it's going to be a lot of um, analytics. So bear with me. Uh, banks currently use a risk based capital method of um managing capital requirements. Now, what is a capital requirement? A capital requirement is how much a bank uh, must hold on hand measured as a percentage of their assets, right? So if a bank manages, uh, let's say $100 billion, right? <clears throat> and their capital requirement is 7%, well, they have to keep 7 billion in cash on hand, right? The other 93 is floating off between loans, securities, what have you, right? And the way risk-based capital works is now, uh, right now, that is presently, uh, riskier loans, banks that use riskier loans, right, uh, have higher reserve requirements because, uh, you know, there's a greater risk of default on the borrower's behalf, which is, you know, the risk of them not paying. Uh, so the bank must maintain this, you know, level of capital that says we can cover all costs if need be. Uh, now continuing, the largest banks right now, right are, are doing fairly well with risk-based capital uh because there isn't much risk associated with it right uh being that you know a, a riskier bank a riskier loan excuse me is usually associated with a a smaller you know private bank who can uh who kind of has a niche with clients and things like that your larger banks uh you know they usually hold your institutional clients and then it's a lot less risky there uh but here's the thing largest banks uh will have to hold uh, an extra two percentage points for every $100 million of risk-weighted assets. Now, uh, and th this, by the way, largest banks, uh, some might think that, well, there's more small banks around the world than there are large banks, right? Larger banks just kind of have more locations. Well, these larger banks, although they are smaller in numbers, uh, they hold more than three-fourths, I believe it was 78% of all bank assets in the United States. So, three-fourths of all bank assets uh, will be required to increase by 2% for every uh, $100 they have in the bank. Now, this might not seem like a big move, uh, but doing a lot of calculations, right? <laughs> a lot of analysts I uh, pulled from various areas and found that uh, this will result in a 16% increase in common equity requirements for banks. So common equity is just general holdings of a bank. Uh, 16% is huge, right? Um, that's like saying a bank is holding a billion, right? And over time, they have to, you know, let's say it's 100 billion total, right? Right now, they hold 
2%, so 2 billion. Uh, and it has to be 16%. They have to come up with 14 billion to hold in the bank, right? Now, if they have 100 billion, right? I'm using examples to break this down. If they have 100 billion, they can pull more uh, from the loans and just hold it in the bank, right? Just loan out less money. That seems like a, a simple solution, right? Uh, but there's problems with this. The more money a bank can loan out, the lower rates can be for that bank. Now, that's because uh, a greater supply, well, they have, the, they, they have the ability to charge less, right? If there's more people buying, uh, they can say, okay, we can do 10 loans today instead of four. Uh, we can lower the rate because our interest rate is spread across these 10 rather than central to four. Uh, and those 10 people will get a lower rate than the uh, the four who invested the day before, right? Just as an example. Uh, but now there's going to be problems because banks will have to hold more capital on hand, more cash on hand, which means they will be loaning out less. They'll be doing the opposite. Less loans means that, well, as I just you know explained in the scenario, uh, rates will increase for, for LIBOR rates. That's the uh, interbank rate, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the Fed fund rate. That's confusing too. The Fed's fund rate is what uh, the Federal Reserve has been changing over the past 18 months. The LIBOR rate is the uh, interbank rate, uh, which goes between banks trading overnight funds, right? And we're talking billions of dollars traded every night. So uh, when they have less loans, they're going to be able to raise rates. Uh, they're not, not going to have a choice to raise rates, actually, because um, they have to make their money, right? So that means for the average person, uh, if you have a, a CD account with the bank, um, if you are a businessman and you're, you're taking out business loans for a bank, uh, you're going to look at lower CD rates on your money, right, for money market. And you're also going to look at uh, higher interest rates for loans, right? Um, and there's a lot of things that come with this. Uh, credit risk, of course, on the bank's behalf, right? So uh, default risk is already there because um, as the borrower, you, you always have the risk of not paying, right? But the bank is seen as the one who is, you know, more stable. They, they're always going to have capital on hand, right? Uh, if interest rates go up, um, banks may have a risk of not meeting capital requirement, right? Meeting credit risk, which means that, you know, the government's probably going to say, well, if you can't meet our requirements, you can't make loans out to anybody else. Um, operational risk, right? This one is a bit tricky, uh, but in in layman's terms, there are certain methods used to calculate how much a bank must hold on hand right now, right? Uh, earlier, I mentioned risk-based capital, and there's a bunch of these uh, formulas and, and scenarios and uh, different methods ran through all different technologies to figure out how much a bank must have on hand. Uh, Basel III Endgame is going to completely change that. Uh, it's gonna force banks to adjust to an entire new method of calculation, right? Uh, which may or may not be warranted depending on how long uh, banks have been using the current method. Uh, but either way, it's gonna be a big change and it's gonna be a, a costly one. And it's gonna take time uh, and it's gonna be confusing as well. Uh, all these three together, it's not a good ingredient uh, for the, the consumers putting their money at banks. Uh, now, no, I'm not saying uh, banks are just gonna all collapse like the, the Great Depression, right? No, that's, that's not gonna happen. Uh, but you are going to see some direct effects on you, the consumers. Now, you're going to see higher borrowing costs, specifically for home buyers who can't put 20% down, right? So 
Uh, again, the typical uh, home buying process, I guess the ideal is, is rather what I should say. Uh, as you go to buy a home, the home costs 200,000. You're supposed to put 20,000 down, uh, 40%. Uh, the rest is spread over a uh, 30 year fixed or floating, depending on how you want your mortgage uh, rate done over again over the next 30 years. So that process is going to be a bit different um, being that interest rates will be higher if you cannot afford to put down 20% up front. Um, and again, this is because the bank is is sort of in a, in a tighter place, right? The bank is almost, uh, in terms of, of the economy, they're like hawkish, how the Fed was hawkish with rates. Uh, and they're like, we got to raise them to slow things down. Uh, the banks are going to have to raise them uh, just to make money, right? And of course, that's their number one priority. So you know it will happen. <laughs> um, yeah, higher costs for home buyers uh, who can't put down a 20%, which to my knowledge is a, a good portion, if not a majority of this country. Um, again, if you tuned into the last few episodes, you know that the average home price right now is about 350000 right? Uh, it's increased 41% since 2019. So since prior to the pandemic, uh, the average home price has increased 41%. Uh, unbelievable, right? Let's do the math. Uh, 350, you take 20% of that. Uh, we're talking $70,000. The average person does not have $70,000 in cash or in liquid assets to just spend on a house, right? Um, and again, you can't take it out as a loan because, well, banks are going to have higher interest rates on their loans. So um, it's putting home buyers in a rough place. We're also going to see uh, lower credit card limits uh, because there will be more lines opening. Now, what does this mean? Well, if you can't get the good rate you want at your your main bank right well you're gonna have to go to another bank to get it right if you're if your credit card interest rate is too high and you can't pay that one off you're gonna have to open new lines of credit to you know afford to pay things um we're gonna see lower credit card balances which is going to lead to more lines opening uh which is going to affect people's credit scores right we're going to see a large uh, i guess you could say change or movement to lower credit scores because people will be forced to open more uh, credit card accounts, right? I believe the average person right now has three lines of credit. Um, that's going to increase pretty dramatically, uh, you know, upon the approval of Basel III in-game. Uh, because again, it is just a proposal. Uh, but let's do some numbers. Uh, credit card balances grew $48 billion, right? And this is not over a year. This is just in the third quarter. <laughs> so for the past three months, uh, $48 billion were added in credit card balances, right? Uh, far exceeding the pre-pandemic average. Um, again, this is our new metric of normal. So 2019, 2018, uh, there wasn't even this much credit card balance, right? Um, and then we're seeing an increase since the pandemic, of course, but uh, now that the pandemic has slowly began to, to fade, you know, in, into being something of the past, we're still seeing uh, credit card balances increase. Now, what else is going to be affected by Basel III in-game? Uh, commodity producers will have higher costs to hedge. Now, what does this mean? Um, again, if you've been tuning in, you know that commodities are essentially your, your tangibles you can invest in, right? You can go on the stock market. Uh, you can invest in wood. You can invest in oil. Uh, you can invest in gold, right? Which I spoke about last week right? as a, a pretty good investment, at least forecasted by analysts for the 2024. So go listen to that. But... Uh, commodity producers, right? The people uh, producing these gold or whether they own the quarries, uh, the people 
who have maybe farms of, of fish, uh, people, your, your lumberjacks, right? Your agriculture owners, they're going to have higher costs to hedge because they use futures, which is essentially uh, the options for commodities, right? How, uh, you know, options is to stocks, uh, futures is to commodities. So that's what they use to hedge against increasing prices uh, for they're, they're harvesting, right? Whatever they're harvesting. So let's say I harvest gold. Um, I think that oil prices are going to increase. I use a lot of oil in the process of harvesting gold for my trucks or whatever it may be. Um, I'm going to place a hedge against oil, right? That says if oil goes up, I make money, right? So, and I have enough to uh, make, take those profits and spend it on the, uh, the actual gas I need for my vehicles, right? But anyway, uh, they're going to have higher costs to do that uh, because banks clear futures, right? Banks are the intermediary of uh, the clearinghouse for futures trades. So uh, these commodity producers are going to have to pay a premium uh, for hedging, <clears throat> excuse me, against costs like this, right? Now, what does this mean for you? Uh, higher food costs for one, right? Agriculture is a, a big commodity. Cattle is a big commodity. Uh, if you've been shopping in the grocery stores for the past two years, you know that prices have been crazy. Uh, a gallon of milk is in some places $4 and some, you know, almost $8. Um, things are not going to be as affordable as they are right now, um, it, which is not going to be a good mix with more credit lines being opening because people are just going to be more enabled uh, to invest in, in credit, right? Rather than the money they have. Um, for example, BNPL, buy now, pay later is a big trend um, it's really got highlighted last month during Black Friday, but it's been a big trend all year. Uh, basically, companies are allowing you to, you know, buy now, right? It's almost like a layaway. Buy now and pay it off in four payments. For example, like uh, Credit Karma, right? You buy something, break it up into four payments. Um, now, that's a, a great thing in hindsight because you might have to buy something you actually need. You can't afford it. BNPL allows you to afford it. But um, this is a line of credit. Right. Remember, it is affecting uh, your credit score. Right. And soon enough, if, if prices are high enough, we're going to see people having to do BNPL uh, for groceries. Right. And that may not even be a choice. It may just be a thing of convenience. Right. Why pay one hundred dollars now? You could pay twenty five bucks over the next four months. Um, it's, it's not going to be great for the bank level consumer. Um, or just the, the average consumer, right? Whether your money's in the banks, whether you are a banker, right? Whether you are a uh, financial advisor, you're going to have to change your investment strategies for your clients. Uh, we're going to see what I believe is a process of debanking. This has been a process uh, that's been an idea for years, right? Particularly, of course, after 08. Uh, but essentially, people moving their investments away from banks and into other alternative investments. Now, there's so many other investments uh to go in right there's real estate there's the stock market right there's well the bond market um there's art which again i will talk about uh in, in a future episode but my job is to make you all aware right my job is to not uh provide you with an investment recommendation but uh, an investment option because basel 3 in game is scheduled to be implemented mid 2025 and it's a process it's going to take about three years thereafter uh to be fully implemented but 
you all should be aware of this now because as more of it begins to get passed and, and uh, banks slowly adjust into boss three in game uh you're gonna see a change in interest rates right you're gonna see a change in your own bank account uh if you don't have a lot of cash in hand you're gonna see a change in your buying power against things like homes right uh which again if you've been listening to the podcast you know that the real estate uh bubble quote unquote you should say we're in uh is is pretty hefty right 41 percent increase in four years on the average home price is crazy uh because the average salary has not increased 41 percent in the past four years right so uh we're going to see a lot of changes uh with this being passed now again it is a proposal and there are lots of people fighting against it uh banks of course included but um, large companies are also fighting against it because it will affect their finances, right? It will affect their balance sheet. Uh, so get educated, uh, go online, learn about Basel 3 and game from the Basel committee and be aware. Uh, I want people to get ahead of the curve, right? A lot of people choose to make the move or the investment after it's already went up, right? Uh, if you've been tuned into Nvidia this year, um, I don't want to say it's too late, uh, but it's definitely not too early to invest in NVIDIA, right? You kind of missed that gravy train. Um, learn about things and jump on the train before it takes off, right? That's how you get the best investment. Uh, investing is not just about how much you put in, right? Or how high you sell it. Um, when you buy it is almost equally, if not more important than when you sell it. Right. If you follow the, the typical Warren Buffett philosophy, right, buy low, sell high. Um, the first words are to buy low. Right. That's just a metaphor for um, being knowledgeable in this banking scenario. But uh, learn before is, is more of a, a, a better thing to say. Uh, learn before the curve. Learn before the jump. Um, try to stay educated so you know that when banks feel like they did earlier this year, uh, you're already ahead of it. Right. Learn about interest rates uh, that are coming in the next, you know, 2024 cycle. Uh, learn about the possibility of a recession so that you are prepared uh, prior to when it happens, right? You, you don't want to be in the middle of a recession and then have to make some adjustments. Uh, by then, it's going to be pretty hard, right? But anyway, that's why you come here. You listen to me. I give you some great option information. Uh, and again, as always, feel free to uh, drop some stuff in the comments, any uh, feedback, any Thing you would like to hear people have been giving me great recommendations to talk about uh which i'm trying to focus on but thank you all for tuning in again once again i'm your host christian fields uh tune in next week for some more great information